If you've walked with the Lord for any amount of time, you know that something is more important than your happiness. And that's your holiness. And God uh, sends those mountains and difficulties because He has a plan. And His plan is actually from the foundation of the world, not only to redeem your heart, but even your glorification is, is planned by the Lord. Romans 8 tells us that those He justified, He also glorified. glorified. Amen, sister. Amen, sister. <laughs> Just think about the mind of the Father, the fact that, that your glorification, the day you are able to see Jesus. See, today you see through a glass dimly. Just imagine the day when we're able to behold Him face to face. That is predetermined by the Father. And furthermore, God is concerned with conforming you to the image of His Son this side of heaven. Ultimately, you will be conformed to that image. But today and every day is a day that God can use through difficulties and mountains and ups and downs to to conform you into the image of His Son. Praise God for it. Today I want to talk to you about disciple-making servants. In order for a church to be healthy, biblically, that particular church must teach and receive gospel-centered instruction. That's pretty much what you're going to learn by Luke today as he gives us Acts 18, 18 through 28. Paul has an incredible evangelistic zeal and fire to take the gospel to the nations. But that zeal was also mingled with a passion to see churches spiritually grow and become what the Lord would have them to be with theological integrity and to become healthy churches. And I think, folks, those two things have to go together. Gospel-centered instruction and teaching and theological integrity. You have to know what you believe. And we don't get it from man's wisdom or our... uh, We often say, well, I believe this all my life, and and then you force that belief upon the Bible. That's wrong thinking. That's called stinking thinking. And little thinkers are big stinkers. You must allow the Word of God to dictate your feelings. Not press your feelings upon the Word. So when we say gospel-centered and theological integrity, folks, that's not something new. This was the heartbeat of Paul. Zeal for taking the gospel to the ends of the earth and going from church to church and, and sharing Christ in those synagogues and in those areas. But also, he had a desire for healthy congregations. That means you have to have theological integrity and then also becoming a healthy congregation. So, this is, this is going to be the end of Paul's second missionary journey. And in this, Luke is going to give us two preparatory windows into some events that are taking place. One is in the life of the Apostle Paul. The other is in the life of one you've never heard of named Apollos. Some of you read before we got here. So these windows. Now we would be tempted to say this is just filler by Luke to get to the ministry in Ephesus. It's not true. You will miss some huge gospel-centered gems that come shining through when we look at Paul and Apollos that you otherwise would have missed if you just hiccup and go go past verses 18 through 23 and just jump in. Uh, to our lesson concerning Apollos. But again, remember, Paul has been in Corinth for how long? 18 months. 
And the God of eternity says, no one's going to harm you. Keep speaking because I have many people in this city. And so do you think Paul loved the church? Do you think we ought to love the church? He had a pastor's heart, but Paul was also a missionary. And in our passage, you're going to find that he, he settles in a little bit. And you have a travel log of 1,500 miles of activity that Paul is going to be engaged upon. And Luke squeezes 1,500 miles into about a verse and a half. Right? And so, but Paul has a missionary heart. So even though he's going to have a pastor's heart pouring into those churches, strengthening them, he's going to move quickly to get back to his missionary heart and go into Ephesus. So that's kind of the background of what we're looking into. Now, are you ready for the scripture reading? Y'all see how hard it's going to be for me to take five minutes tonight? I, I mean, look, look, this is Pastor Appreciation Month, so lay off me, right? All right. Chapter 18, beginning in verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, notice there's a change in the way the wording is given. Uh, this is uh, the first time Aquila only gets his name mentioned first once. In the husband-wife relationship. From here on out, it's going to be Priscilla and Aquila. So he has them accompanying him as he sets sail for Syria. At, and of course the Greek reading is Kenkrii, but in Centria he had cut his hair. Wow, here's one of those little gems. We're like, why is that in there? It's for a reason. For he was under a vow, and they came to Ephesus. And he left them there, meaning Aquila and Priscilla, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, this is the way we all, all should live, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to another are to the next, to the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Just notice that. 1,500 miles, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross over to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. That meaning Apollos, right? When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. May God add his blessings to the proclamation and reading of his word. So Paul is going to leave Corinth, and the Bible says he's going to the region of Syria. And if you look at a map, what does he have to do to get to this region? He has to cross the Mediterranean Sea. And so he's getting ready to set sail for that area. And when it says north, we'd have to believe that that consideration is Antioch, the mission-sending church. When it says he went south, or he goes up to... Now understand, even if you were going south, but you were going to Jerusalem, you were still going up to Jerusalem. That's just the way they viewed it, and their understanding of, of the city. 
And so we would take the north to be Syria, the church of Antioch, and traveling in Syria, going south, they would go to Jerusalem. And he takes along some companions, Priscilla and Aquila. And again, here it is, she's placed first. One Puritan scholar says, from this point on, uh, Priscilla is the more esteemed. I can relate to that. If I was Peter walking on the water, I'd sink. If it was my wife, she'd probably get her ankles wet. Right? I mean, there's a reason why uh, I fully understand why I am Natalie's husband. Right? That's the way you need to be introduced, guys. If the truth be known. Correct? This means yes. Yeah, you should be. And this was uh, the way that we see it. Uh, we have this interesting bit of information. Paul stops in what, again, Kincrii or Centria, he's going to get his hair cut. He's going to finish a vow. And we don't know exactly what this is talking about for sure, but Centria would have been seven or eight miles outside of Corinth, and it would have been the port area. Why is he there? Well, he passes through there, but he's getting ready to get on a ship, right, to set sail to Syria. And when you think of cutting hair, what might come to mind? A vow of some sort. As the text indicates, was it a Nazarite vow as given to us in Numbers 6, verse 2, 5, 9, and 18? You can read that on your own time if you'd like to. It could be that. It could also be a personal vow that the Apostle Paul took. But regardless, the Bible says he shaved his head. And the vow... Uh, could have been in connection with the gratitude that he had to God for protecting him in Corinth. And being able to finish that incredible ministry inside of a very immoral, a sexually immoral city. It could have been that. It could have been a vow of dedication for finishing that course in Corinth. It could have actually been conciliatory somewhat. As he was going up to Jerusalem, he was doing it for his Jewish Christian leader brothers. That's what it could have been. He could have been going up there, as he will go up to Jerusalem. He could have had something to do with his Jewish brothers. and Not because Paul did it because of the law, but because Paul knew that it would be a good bridge for gospel speaking. You know, we look at some of those ceremonial laws in the Old Testament, and you're not bound by those laws by no means, but there might be a situation where you're ministering to a Jewish brother that you might consider one of those ceremonial vows, such as not eating pork when it comes to an evangelistic encounter. And we're not, we're not sure what's going on. But after 18 months in Corinth, the vow comes to an end and he shaved his head. He did not bleach it blonde. Or red. Or some of the other kind of crazy color. There may be any of those. I don't know. But anyway, the guy's got short hair. Right? And he's up there teaching. He, he's preaching. And the gist is that they get to Ephesus. And Paul ministers in the synagogue for a while, and then he leaves Aquila and Priscilla there in Ephesus. Remember, this was Paul's missionary strategy. He would go where? Straight into the synagogue. And he would go there. Why? Because there was a gospel bridge already made. Why? Because Jews and God-fearing Gentiles knew the Old Testament. And Paul would stand and preach and proclaim the Word, and he would bring that connection of the Old Testament and its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So... There was common ground, whether it was Hellenized Jews or Greeks or whatever it may have been. So Paul uses the synagogue as a bridge to share the gospel. And the text includes that there's some fruit there, right? 
they're almost like the Berean synagogue. Remember it? They heard what Paul preached about Christ and they, they listened intently and they followed along in the Word uh, to hear and to learn. Well, these people in Ephesus were much like that because when they heard it, they wanted to hear more. They desired for him to stay. But at this time, Paul knows it's not the time to stay. And so, from our Christian perspective, we would say, you know what, if we see a little bit of fruit, then we need to grind this thing out. We need to do exactly what we're doing. But, but Paul, led by the Spirit of God, stays his course. And he does leave some pretty good disciples. Disciple makers there, correct? Aquila and Priscilla are there to take care of this blossoming little group of disciples that are, that are coming out of Ephesus. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul will send greetings to Corinth from the church that he meets in, in the house of Priscilla and Aquila from Ephesus. So that are uh, two Ephesus. That's interesting, right? At the end of 1 Corinthians. So Paul says, at this point, I'll come back if who wills it? God does. You know what the Bible says in the book of James? It reminds us not to say we're going to do this on that day or do this particular thing, but to say we'll do it if God wills. We need to be considered. We need to consider the will of God. And James reminds us of that. So this is a recognition of the sovereignty of our God over all the details of life. And here is Paul recognizing that. Now in verse 22, the text says, that once he landed in Caesarea, that he went up and greeted the church. And again, remember the intro? I think that means that Paul went up to Jerusalem. Shaved head and all. He goes up to Jerusalem to meet the brethren. And then the Bible says he goes down to Antioch. And what do we know about Antioch? It is the missionary sending church. So here's Paul. Every time they send him out on the first mission... He comes back to them to report, send him out on the second, and now he's going back a second time to be sent out the third time. And he's going back to that church. It would have kind of been like going back to your home church. You know that feeling? When you go back to Georgia like me, or you get back around people that were around when God called you into the ministry. and you, It's nothing like going home, right? And maybe that's like a homecoming we'll have here at FBCO. Maybe May 5, May 5th, coming next year, when we open up that what do you call that thing? Time capsule out there. 150 years for our church is coming up next year. And we'll, we'll ask people to come back home. And Paul certainly felt this as he traveled back to Antioch and that church that welcomed him and laid their hands on him and sent him out for these missionary endeavors. Okay, you ready for the sermon? All right, here we go. I'm ready. Here it is. Number one, disciple-making servants have a passion for spiritual growth and healthy congregations. And what I've done for you is kind of give you the travel log of, of 18 through 22. And then when you get to verse 23, here's Paul doing what disciple-making believers do. Servants of the king have a passion for spiritual growth and healthy congregations. And in verse 22, half of it, and verse 23, in, for 1,500 miles, Paul has something at the top of mind. And this time, it's not evangelism. Necessarily. What is it? Strengthening the churches. Folks, do you know how important this is? That our churches are healthy and that we are strengthened. And Paul is going to use that terminology at least, this is the fourth time he uses the word strengthen. Uh, you just sit still there and listen to chapter 14 verse 22. is the first time we, we, we see it. 
the Bible says, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith. That's the first time. 1532, the word is going to be used again. This time by just Judas and Silas. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. 1541, back to Paul. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And then when you get to chapter 18, at this verse, we see him strengthening. For what purpose? So they will mature and become stronger in the faith. Word-driven, disciple-making servants put an emphasis upon the church of God being healthy. If you're driven by the Word of God, and not man's tradition, if you're driven by the Word, which we're supposed to be, then you're going to have an understanding as congregants that a healthy congregation is vitally important. That we are to be maturing in our faith. And he, and he goes to these recent converts. And if you look, uh, a snapshot, cameo in Galatians 4, 19, Paul is agonizing before the Lord for the spiritual maturity of those recent converts that come to Christ in Galatia. So this is, I mean, here's perhaps one of the, there's no doubt he's the greatest teacher that ever lived, the Apostle Paul. That's a human being, right? And here he is with this understanding that this is so vitally important that he's agonizing before the Lord about spiritual maturity and growth. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 19-20, he is rejoicing. So he goes from agonizing, and, in, and to the Thessalonian believers, he's rejoicing because he sees the spiritual growth and faith that's taking place in their hearts. We too must desire earnestly to see people converted, but also to see them grow in the context of a healthy church body. That's what we need at this church. And I'm not trying to be mean or uh, disconnected, but I'm just telling you, we live in an age when people think doctrine and theology is unimportant. I'm telling you folks, it is essentially important that you know what you believe and that you are maturing as a believer. As a believer, there's no such thing as going in the middle and being neutral. You're either slipping backwards or you're growing. And remember, there's a whole book written about that called Hebrews. It's about progressing in the Christian faith. And so you ought to be progressing if you are saved. You ought to be more like Jesus tomorrow than you are today. Right? There should be spiritual growth going on. And in the midst of all of that, we have to wrestle with the Scriptures. And read the Word. Allow the Word. And so for you disciple makers who are meeting with people, it's not about coffee and Kool-Aid. It's about pouring in the Word of God to people. Are y'all listening? It's about pouring in the Word. you got to give them what the Bible says. Do we need personal experience? Yes. But this is about, if you're going to be a Word-driven disciple maker, then that the very most important thing you can ever do is pour into people the Word of God. And let that be what is causing them to spiritually grow. Number two, disciple-making servants need to strive for theological integrity. Now, in verse 24, you're introduced to someone you haven't heard of before, and his name is Apollos. And it's awesome that we kind of get this cameo. We get another window into what's going on in, in the churches 
as Paul gets prepared to go into Ephesus. What do we know about Apollos? The Bible tells us he was an Alexandrian Jew. Where was Alexandria? Where? It's in Egypt, correct? Alexandria was actually the Roman seat inside of Egypt. It was a famous center for learning and for culture and for education. At one time, the Alexandrian Library was the largest library in the entire ancient world. Can you imagine? The ancient rabbis went to Alexandria. When I say ancient rabbis, I'm talking about the Jewish rabbis around 200 B.C., and that was 200 years before the birth of Christ, they actually traveled to Alexandria to write or to translate the Old Testament into the New Testament. And we call that, uh, to translate the Old Testament into Greek. So they took Hebrew, translated it into Greek, so that you could read the Old Testament in Greek. Y'all know that took place. It's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint was written in Alexandria. And so... I mean, the geographical place for the translation or writing of the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek was in Alexandria. It was also the home of a lot of philosophical scholars like Philo and Clement and Athanasius and Origen. Philo himself was an Alexandrian Jew that would have been a contemporary of Paul. And most people believe that Philo was the greatest Jewish thinker that ever lived. I would disagree. I would say it would be Paul. Right? So... Here, here is this guy named Apollos. And you got to know, folks, if he's from Alexandria, he's highly educated. He's eloquent. He is, he's learned, would be the Greek word. And usually what that means, that you would be able to speak. And people would recognize that kind of gift. And remember, this is the exact opposite of Peter, James, and John, right? When these guys come on the scene in Acts 4, what do they say? Man, here's these uneducated, here's the word, unlettered people that are up, able to speak, and they don't have their papers from the synagogue. They don't have their religious pedigree that they need, and they were just bum-fuzzled that these unlearned men would be able to stand up and preach and teach like they did. You know why they did that? Because of the Holy Spirit of God, right? And they were able to do that. doesn't mean they were dumb or uh, unintelligent. It just means in the understanding of an education, they were uneducated. But yet they were up there preaching and teaching the Word of God. Apollos is different. Now check this out. The Bible says he was mighty in the Scripture. You get the picture of a mind that was steeped in the Old Testament Scriptures. His ability to recall what the Word of God says and to expound it and to apply the Scriptures was phenomenal. The Bible says he was instructed in the way of the Lord. And I take that to mean that he has an understanding in the Old Testament of the coming of the Messiah and the promise of the kingdom. He was probably preaching the kingdom of God and the coming of the Messiah. The Bible says he was fervent in spirit, is what my translation says. But my Greek New Testament has an article in front of spirit, so it is the spirit. That's interesting, right? It is the spirit. He was fervent in the Spirit. And here's a guy who was not boring, but zealous and enthusiastic. I mean, he didn't get up there giving just an Old Testament uh, narrative and just kind of throwing it out there without energy and passion. 
Here's a guy who was passionate about what he believed and preached the word. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' definition of preaching is this. Logic on fire. I like it. Right? So Apollos fits that bill. Logic on fire. Luke also drops this little tidbit of information. He was accurately given the things concerning Jesus, but he knew only the baptism of John. Now, folks, this is hard to discern. What's going on in the text here? Uh, I think it's, there are a couple of possibilities that we have. Uh, keep in mind, when you're doing Bible interpretation, it's like standing on a bridge. And you look to your left and the water's flowing. You know which way that's going? It's pretty obvious, right? You're standing on the bridge. You look to the right and you see where the water is going, correct? Well, what about the water under your feet? It's going the same way. That's Bible interpretation. You gain an understanding by, Lord, let's see where the water is flowing from this direction and that direction. They're going in the same way. So what's under my feet? It's also going to be flowing in the same direction. Now, normally speaking, that's what you think about when you're doing Bible interpretation. You keep everything in the context. So because of chapter 19, and those that we're going to preach this in a few weeks, those there in Ephesus who had not heard of the baptism of John, it would be easy for us to conclude the first thing that I'm going to say to you. And that is that it's possible that Apollos is unfamiliar with Christ's ascension, the outpouring of the Spirit, and the inauguration of the Messianic kingdom. So in other words, as Priscilla and Aquila listened, they concluded something was not quite right. It was incomplete. There was an important piece missing. That, In other words, he didn't know that the Holy Spirit had come in power. That's a, that is a valid possibility. But there's also another possibility. Because the Bible tells us several things. In other words, if he's not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, is he a Christian? Right? So we have to take pause and say, well, was this man who was so eloquent, who reasoned directly from the Word and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus Christ, yet he was unfamiliar or stumping his toe on the baptism of John versus the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what is actually going on? And I would remind you that I, hard, I find it hard to believe that Apollos was not a Christian. Okay? Now, I could be wrong, but Luke, when he says he was fervent in the Spirit, means the Spirit of God is working through him. Now, I know the Spirit of God also worked through Balaam's donkey. Right? And God can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. He'll raise up anybody he wants to, to perform his will. Okay? We, we, we understand that. But also, uh, the Holy Spirit was that distinguishing mark between the baptism of John and Jesus. So, just a guy being so accurately giving out the Word, and he was so accurately expounding upon the Old Testament, connecting it to Jesus, I find it hard to believe. I'm not persuaded that Apollos was a lost man preaching. It could be that Apollos is simply not aware of the covenantal understanding of baptism established by Jesus. It could be water baptism, right? It could be the fact that he did not know of the visible gospel or the gospel made visible. Baptism doesn't save you, but baptism is you are commanded in the Word of God to be baptized as symbolic. So it could be that he didn't understand that covenant relationship, whereas the sign or visible sign of the gospel working in someone's life and converting them was for them to go under the water and come back up, right? 
It could be that. In other words, the ordinance of baptism vividly illustrates our union with Christ in His death and resurrection. It could have been that he just didn't know uh, the proper understanding of, of water baptism when he was preaching the gospel. Whereas we would say, come to Jesus and trust Christ, and then you follow in believers' baptism. So, in the second part of verse 26, uh, we deal with church relationships. Right? And here is, Apollo, here is Apollos preaching something where he's got some gaps theologically. Remember what we talked about? In healthy churches... We have to have spiritual growth and maturity, but we also, have, we also must have theological integrity. And here is Aquila and Priscilla, and they're listening to what he says. Now, can you imagine? They've been left in some, some kind of way with an understanding that we're the only ones here to help these new disciples. And here's Aquila and Priscilla, and they go into the synagogue with these disciples, and they're listening, and they hear something that just doesn't quite sit right on with them. It's, Something's missing. And how does Priscilla and Aquila handle this? Well, they give us a model of how, how to engage a high-capacity teacher and how that individual should be corrected. They demonstrate this with humility and with compassion. But they also demonstrate some conviction. They don't let the matter go. Church, if there's doctrinal error and heresy, you can't let it go. You cannot let it go, even if it's me. If there's something that don't jihad with the Word of God, and we're not preaching what the text says, not proof texting, grabbing what you want it to say, but if you're in context, here's the deal. 98% of us at this moment would have not handled it like Aquila and Priscilla. And this is an indictment against the church of the living God. That we'll sit there, and we won't handle it like the Bible tells us to handle it when there's an error. But... Our response would be, did you hear what he said? I knew something was wrong with that Georgia boy right there. Right? Just can't go along with that. I mean, he moves people, but he wouldn't know his theology if he had two hands on the book. Right? He doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't know diddly about Bible doctrine. But they didn't do that, did they? They didn't go around and talk to their brothers and hear what he said. I told you. They don't do that, do they? What do they do? Privately. Pull them aside. You know, that's biblical, you know. How you deal with confrontation. How you deal with error. We know what the Bible says, but somehow or another, it just, we miss it in the gray matter up there. Right? We don't think about what the Word says. You know why? We don't believe it. Amen? We don't believe the Word when it comes to how to deal with things. We think, oh, we can handle it our American way. I mean, you kind of feel like Judge Kavanaugh's on trial again. Right? Instead of looking at the Word and asking the questions, we don't handle it that way. We see a young couple, a couple, that doesn't ostracize someone, doesn't hammer them, doesn't blackball them, but helps fill in the theological gaps. Praise God for Priscilla and Aquilas. Right? That know what to do. They didn't correct a brother argumentatively with a critical spirit. Rather, here's how we deal with it. With prayer, with humility, and an open Bible. The only way we can deal with theological matters, folks, is from the Word that gives us our theology. We open up the Word of God with our brothers and sisters. It's not just to the pastor. 
I, I can tell you that. I mean, we, we all have those. I'm the one that's visible up here. But how do you treat your brothers and sisters in the Lord when they have a theological gap? How do you treat them? Well, you, you need to be humble. And you need to love them. You need to take that young disciple to the Word privately and share with them what the Scriptures say and what the essentials of the faith are. I want to say thank you for loving your pastor. Right? Uh, and you should. But the fact of the matter is, we're going to learn in a few moments that you can't deify anyone. It's the Lord God Almighty that we should boast in. Not man. And I can't think of a, a better time to have received... Uh, pastor appreciation cards and letters in the last month of my life. That's a long story, but the fact is, I appreciate you more than you'll ever know. So praise God for that particular part. But here is Apollos. Who, how, how did he receive it? How did Apollos receive it? Well, obviously he must have received it pretty well. He must have took what they said to him and their counsel and actually adopted their position. They were great disciple-making servants. God, give us more like Aquila and Priscilla. Are y'all listening to this sermon? God, give us more people like them who are hospitable, right? They're, they're inviting people into their home. They're patient, but they're also instructive. We need a church full of Aquila and Priscilla's. And here's a man who is now theologically equipped to share the gospel. And that's what he does. Are y'all tracking with me? Spiritual maturity, healthy congregations, theological integrity. It's vitally important. Number three, disciple-making servants maintain scriptural fidelity. What does that mean? Big word that just means be faithful to the Scripture. Right? We're going to be faithful to the Scripture. And when 27 and 28, and when he visited, and we wish, when he wished to cross over, he goes where? He goes back to Corinth, where Paul was. Y'all realize that, right? He goes back to Corinth and he has a desire to go there to encourage him. They actually wrote a letter. I mean, here's a guy that was in theological error at that point. They straighten him out and then they give their 100% approval to say, okay, you receive him over in Corinth because here's a man of God who is gifted of God to speak. And the Bible says when he arrived, he greatly helped. Notice that. Just hang on every word. When he arrived, he greatly, listen to this, he helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ Jesus, or Christ was the Jew, was Christ. Listen, that's scriptural fidelity. That's important. Now, Paul had other gifts, correct? Paul was an evangelist and a missionary and a pastor. But I would say to you that Apollos was not, char not called to be a church planter. Because he stays in Corinth. Okay? Not everybody's called to go from church to church, from country to country. There are those who are called to be in the church as a pastor doing what Apollos did. Refuting and preaching the word. Helping people grow in the faith and staying wed to the Bible when you do it. So... He wants to go back to that region. Uh, again, he recognized his gifts. And Apollos' gifts were more in building up the church. This is the way that Paul will address the Corinthians. Here it is, 1 Corinthians 1. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. 
Aren't you thankful for gifted servants of the king? Some can plant, some can water, but if anything ever happens for the glory of God in this church, it's going to happen because God gives the increase. And that's what he said to him. He encouraged them. To, they encouraged him to go. Priscilla and Aquila did. They didn't have the attitude that, well, wait a minute. We went there with Paul. And Paul started that church. And Apollos, you can't go where Paul started it. Was that the attitude? No, folks. The attitude was, here's a gifted man of God. Of character and integrity. You receive him because it'll be good for your soul. Receive him. Notice what he does. He helped them along in the faith. He took those who had believed through grace. Which is the only way you can believe. You believe by grace. Right? Through faith. Notice the wording here. Through grace. Say it. Through grace. Believed. You will never believe without grace. Do y'all see that? Did you look at the Bible or are you just listening to me? Right? Because I could have said it backwards. Some of you say, yeah, that's right, preacher. Right? Look, through grace, believe. That's the way God saves everybody. Through grace, they believe. And, and how did he help them? Well, the, this can be translated in the Greek. The Greek is a lot stronger than the English. So, here's, here are a couple of options. He vigorously overwhelmed. Or he refuted completely. Or he demolished them by argument. So here's a man of God who's thoroughly equipped. And this is the kind of ministry that the Bible says helped those who through faith believed. Now understand something. He's refuting. He's preaching the word. He's teaching them. And who is it helping? He's helping the church. And I, I got news for you. This had to be a powerful and vigorous ministry by Apollos. Don't you think? I mean, here's a guy who's vigorously defending the faith and refuting people completely and demolishing them by the argument of the text. This guy is not someone who came to Corinth and said, let's just do a few soft Bible studies. Right? Man, this guy came in with hurricane force winds. When he got to town, people started listening. And God had taken a church planter there named Paul. And God had saved the likes of Sosthenes and Christus. Remember this? Crispus. Some of these guys. And here is an eloquent man of God, educated. And he goes in and he begins to preach the Word of God. And he's not doing it under candlelight with soft Bible devotions. He's preaching and teaching the Word of God. And he's doing so. And I think there was no half-hearted ministry here. No lukewarmness. There was no... There was no, I kind of think it might mean this, maybe this. No, folks. He was preaching the Word. And one of the most important things about those who minister is that those who actually, that we actually minister to must believe that we believe what we're talking about. If I don't believe this book, how in the world can I ever think you're going to believe it? But here's a preacher, I'll tell you right now, I believe what I'm preaching. Right? I believe it from my radiator to my tailpipe. I believe what this book says, and I'm going to stand on it. And folks, there's nothing wrong with being intense. We say sometimes, well, I can't take it. Intent. Do y'all think Apollos was intense? If you're not careful, folks, when you remove the medium, you'll forget the message. And the fact of the matter is, he, he not only had that kind of intensity, 
to refute and to preach the word, but it was a polemical ministry, right? He's right out in front of the people. I mean, this guy goes out into the public, and he is engaging in public debate. And the debate was not simply to win an argument. Here's a bigger picture. It was to strengthen the adherence to the faith. Y'all notice that? The preaching. Uh, he was helping the saved and strengthening the saved people by the way he was refuting them. Uh, have you ever seen, uh, have you ever witnessed Madeline Murray O'Hare, for instance, had a debate one time with, uh, I can't remember his first name, but Montgomery was his last name. I'm sure you can find it on the internet, right? You can find everything else. So, have you ever listened to a, a Bible-trained scholar debate an atheist? I mean, son, you think you feel sorry for him when it's over. You really do. You're like, my goodness. They didn't have a chance. Every time they opened their mouth to give some kind of secular opinion, it was like God Almighty spoke from His Word. And that's the way it was in Montgomery with her. And the guy just chewed her up. And when you get done, you're like, oh, Lord, would you just save her soul? I mean, you just feel. And, and that's kind of, I think, the picture that we ought to get when it comes to our faith. We don't have a faith that is a blind leap, folks. Our faith is grounded in the Word of God and history. So that's the way Apollos dealt with this. He helped those. <laughs> little humor here. I bet you there was a lot of rabbi remains all over the synagogue when this guy got through. I mean, those Greek words powerfully refuted. We just can't quite get that image. Just think about them saying that day. Well, we want to give you ten reasons why Jesus could not be the Messiah. And the people are standing there thinking, you know, Christians don't always get things right. Christians struggle. Some Christians have bad theology. Can you imagine when they said, oh, let us give you ten reasons why Jesus could not be the Messiah. Katie, bar the door. Because when Apollos opened his mouth, he scorched every single one of them to give them ten reasons why he was and is the Messiah. You understand? And this is what the Apostle Paul does. We see a great example of mutual cooperation and encouragement for the good of the entire church by Aquila, Priscilla, Paul, and Apollos. Folks, do y'all see how important this is for our church? Healthy theological congregations that know what they believe and don't, not bashful about it. We believe the Word of God, not man's opinion, but what the Word says. And we do that in cooperation. Why? For the health of the entire church. Amen. This church is way more important than one person's attitude, one person's opinion. Okay? So what ultimately mattered was not Paul's reputation or Apollos' reputation. Because Corinth is going to start arguing. I think Paul was the best preacher. Well, I disagree. I think Apollos was the best preacher. Paul turns around and says, if you're going to boast, you better boast in the Lord. Right? And I remind you that the preacher's reputation is not what's most important. The honor of Jesus Christ is what's most important. And so it's easy for us to deify people. You better not do that. If you're going to deify only one person, it's the Lord of glory. Right? So consider with me what happens to many congregations when they lose an Apollos to another assignment and God calls them away, how does the church function? Unfortunately, not good in a lot of cases. Why? Because they forgot that God gives the increase and not a man. They forgot that God Almighty handles those things. So be thankful for the Word. Be thankful for Word-driven disciple makers. 
Nothing wrong with being thankful for your leaders, your pastor, the preachers of the word, and your Sunday school teachers. I think it's a great thing that you are. The ultimate purpose we have is to glorify our God. Best way to do that was not to be nitpicky and critical, but to cooperate with the body of Christ. And be in cooperation to fill in the theological gaps with people so that we can make an impact for the kingdom. Live to serve and strengthen the body of Christ. You know, folks, Jesus loved the church pretty awesomely. He loved it so much that he gave his life for it. For the church of the living God, we often have the attitude that we're going to give the church the leftovers. God help us. God help us. That should have stuck every one of us right in the heart. Our attitude so often is, Lord, I'll give the church what's left over. But when we read the word of God, we find out this. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ever ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, be him for, for glory in the church throughout all ages, world without end. You do understand that the medium God wants to work through is his church, his people. And, and some people say, well, the church is going to disappear, and that's what the world wants. But I'm telling you, if you read the Bible, the only thing that will still be there is the church. So look, love it. You say, well, universally, I can love the church and stay on the golf course. Folks, you haven't read your New Testament. You have a local body that you're called by God to function in. And if you're not in the body, you can't function as a member of the body. You know, when the toe is hurting, the finger, you know, when something's hurting, the whole body hurts. You know that analogy? Paul gives it in the Word. So I want to remind you today, let's pray that God will give us a love for the church like uh, Priscilla and Aquila and Paul and Apollos had for the church of the living God. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. that took more than five minutes. <laughs> well, I feel compelled sometimes to say this to you. You know, it's, are y'all okay that our service is going to last an hour and 15 minutes? I mean, folks, let me just tell you up front, when you come on Sunday, just you, you'll make it to Godfather's. And, and you'll make it to the line, and you'll beat the Methodist. Now look, I would be more than happy to start at 10. That's what we did down in Pell City. We started at 10 o'clock. That way people didn't feel the hunger pains and automatically think about 12 o'clock. I mean, folks, I joke about that kind of thing. But in light of eternity, folks, what God is doing at this church and in this time of worship to the Lord through the preaching of the Word is invaluable to your soul. Okay? Just relax. Relax. If time is the first thing at the top of your mind, then you're missing out on God's best. Okay? So just put that in your calendar and think about it. We're going to get out usually in an hour and 15 minutes. And just relax. All right? You're not relaxing. All right? You want to watch Kansas City, so I'm going to keep preaching. No, I'm just kidding. There you go. Well, you better not skip over there, right? Tonight I'm going to preach for 20 minutes, right? No. That's not going to happen. Let's pray. Father, we quiet our hearts for a moment. And Lord, we laugh and we joke. But Lord, what's been preached this morning is serious. God, help me as a leader and a pastor of this church, Father, to, to have at the top of my mind the spiritual growth of our people. Lord, theological integrity to the best I know how to give it. God, for cooperation in the body. Of scriptural fidelity. God, to stay wed to the Bible. 
We need to be a Bible-centered church. Disciple, word-driven disciples. And servants of the church. God help us to do that. Father, for the individual who may not know you, God, you throw that gospel net every single time the word is preached. Lord, would you draw people to your, unto yourself? Lord, would you convict of sin, of judgment to come? And Father, may you call someone to turn from sin and self and trust Jesus only for salvation. Thank you for the gospel of grace. Lord, thank you for the gift of trusting you personally, putting our faith in you. God, if you would so be pleased to call someone into yourself today, Lord, would you do it? And may they have the faith to believe. Lord, we pray for continued growth at our church uh, in this body. And Father, may you do it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.